I'm John Atak, and uh, yet again, this is getting to be quite a habit, isn't it? <laughs> I'm very happy to, to welcome the amazing Karen de la Carrier. Hi, Karen. Dearest John, good to be with you again. I look forward to our monthly visits. I do as well. It's great fun. Hugs to you. <laughs> right, so uh, you've proposed that, that we talk about Scientology and sex. And well, it's from the lens or filter of high control groups, mm -hmm. cults. Yeah. They're, and yes, it's a hot subject. Sex is always a button to a greater or lesser degree. But there's not, we're not discussing Scientology sex for the sake of titillation or gossip. We're really oh. looking at the cult. <laughs> we're looking at it as how far a cult will go and what they will do with your very private sexual activity. Exactly what you say, authoritarian groups seek to control the sexual behavior of their members. Now that's sometimes that they will enforce celibacy on them. And we've seen that that's not working very well for certain organizations around the world. Um, or they will, there'll be promiscuity. So the Rajneeshis, uh, one of the reasons they, they were driven out of Pune in India was, was because so many people were engaged either in their violent meetings where they would switch off the lights and punch each other. And so a lot of casualties arrived at the hospital with broken bones or they were put into these meetings where they were meant to have sex with a whole room full of people um, while wearing rubber gloves and condoms because Rajneesh promised that they were going to be the first AIDS free community. That man was completely insane, but you know, and I, I've, I've done a, a lot of work on him and and what happened around him. So there'll be. Is this the same Rajneesh of Oregon? That yeah, that's right. The the Rajneesh, oh big the big muddy, yeah. Mm. Um, and it, it, just an incredible criminal uh, psychopath, basically, who managed to fool people. Uh, in the way that so many cult leaders do, which is that he'd pick up some little bits and pieces from books and then regurgitate them, having only half remembered them. Um, mm. So he tells stories from um, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, a poor rep's book, and he, he tells them wrong. He, he doesn't remember them rightly, but he didn't need to. He also, like Ron Hubbard, had a little bit of a drug problem going on. But the, the thing is that... The control of our sexual behavior is, is the easiest way to hook us. And, and usually you find out that the leader of the group has very strange sexual behavior one way or another. And um, they too may be celibate, but, but they don't, that doesn't tend to be the case very often. And so you have somebody like uh, Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Moonies Unification Church. He was convicted of rape. And somehow managed to buy off the court so that he did, wasn't sent to prison. But he, he was involved in, in very strange sexual dealings because his big thing was to marry thousands of couples who'd never met each other. And uh, having come to know a few people who were put through those marriages, it, it seems largely to have been a way of getting green cards for Koreans and Japanese. Or, oh, green um, cards, yeah. And, and led to some pretty unhappy marriages all in all from what, what i've seen so scientology has a very specific um you brought up the uh, pain and sex well, mm. before uh, we get into pain and sex i, I don't personally want to get into you know, so. <laughs> i want to just give a couple of opening sentences yeah scientology is obsessed underlined, obsessed with your sexual life. Mm. If you just yelled at a senior and you were hauled in for a sex check interrogatory on the e-meter, instead of addressing your yelling, you would be straight into questioned on your sexual activity. It is a non sequitur. Non sequitur. When you fill in an application to be staff or seal, 
Scientology wants you to list every sexual encounter you ever had. When, where, duration, how long did you go? What dirty talk did you use? Did you use any toys? What position were you in? What, what, of what benefit to the church is it to know what position you were in in sexual intercourse? What fantasy did you conjure up in your mind? Did you pretend in your mind you were having sex with someone other than the person you were having intercourse with? This is the depth of how Scientology wants every detail of every sexual intercourse. And no matter what you've done, in order to get in order to get through a sex check, you have to just confess your masturbations, your fantasies. These are thoughts in the mind. So I just and so they are obsessed with sex and they, no matter what they pretend, they are completely anti-gay, homophobic. Mm. Now, because you're so learned and you know all the references, you understand, do you remember, John, that in Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health, he named gays as one one on the tone scale. 1.1, covertly hostile. Yep. Can you explain the 1-1 one, one label of homophobic a little, John? Yeah, it's, it's they're backstabbers, according to Hubbard. And um, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I, let me reflect back on, on what you've just said. I'm very glad that, that I left in 1983, and I'm very glad that none of this sexual assessment you know, in the nine years I was involved, nobody ever asked me those questions. And um, I think this is something that started coming along at the end of Hubbard's life and something that he passed to David Miscavige that Miscavige has now really pushed to the extreme. I mean, you told me about um, the, the idea that whoever's got the most florid sexual confession of the week is paraded at the gold headquarters cmo Int, and this can lead to the breakdown of marriages where um people are asked to to discuss their well they're asked to talk about their, their fantasies I'm, I'm very happy to say that that i was never subjected to that however it was very clear during the nine years of my membership that homosexuals were not welcome i was told that there are various hubbard references i think he talks about it in science of survival where he's expanding upon the emotional tone scale. Um, and I didn't understand that. You know, I, I, I didn't understand why any category of, of person should, should not be um, welcome to, to, to this, uh, what I considered to be valuable teaching at the time. And I did see, you know, I, I encountered, um, I can think of one particular guy who was gay, and he def definitely was just made to suffer for that, that, that this was wrong. I mean, the painter, Mike Pattinson, he was gay and, and he spent years pretending not to be gay so that he could fit in. And if we moved along, Paul Haggis, the Oscar winning film director, he had two Oscars, in fact, um, one for a screenplay and one for direction. Um, he left because of the, the contradiction um, and the lies that were being told about the attitude towards homosexuality. Um, so, yeah. Oh, Scientology was perfectly happy to take gay money. Oh. Didn't want to lose cash, revenue. But it would take cash to ungay you. Gay conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, yeah. Right? Because uh, what you privately did with your own body becomes church business. Mm. And you, you jogged my memory on something when you talked about how the Rajneesh, the immigration purposes, sex, sexual. Yeah. Did you know that the flag land base, ooh, I'm going to enjoy sending Spike these links. The flag land base had a program 
where it didn't want to lose people who were in for six months from Europe. Ukrainians, Russians, Norwegians, Germans, Swedish, a lot of so and and Latin Americans and Latin Americans. So they had a program where marriage was done for green cards. Phony marriages and sexual intercourse for the greatest good. Miscavige's marriages of convenience. Green card marriages. FSO style. FSO is the flag service organization. Unusual solution. Get illegal staff married off to compound the illegality of it all. It played out like this. All unmarried U.S. citizens were urged to choose one of the people on the list to marry before they were forced to leave the country. At the same time, it was made clear to the soon-to-be illegal workers that it was up to them to find a husband or wife and to do it immediately. This was looked upon as their personal ethics situation. A bunch of men and women hooking up not for love, but for money. Follow it through. By getting married, the FSO could maintain its income, sending more than a million dollars a week to Command, otherwise known as David Miscavige. But enforcing fake marriages crosses any line of decency. This is all documented. Yeah. So there was no love. There was no. It was just. Uh, but we're talking about a cult, organized, cult organized marriage, to deceive the U.S. government. Mm. Right. Yeah. And the other thing that jogged my memory was uh, a youngster called Serge Dalmar and pictures will be forthcoming. Mm. Serge were, had parents who were from Mexico, he was from Mexico, they were deeply in, and they donated him to the C organization at 14 years old for gay conversion therapy. They felt the CO will knock out this gayness in him. And Serge was quite a bright little boy, even at 14. He mastered auditing techniques. Serge did a show very bravely on 2020. It's called 2020 ABC Network show. Big show. Yeah, yeah. 5 million to 10 million people watch it. 2020, it's big. Hmm. And Serge revealed on the show, and he's part of, he's revealed it many times, that at 14, 15 years old, he had to, for several hours a day, audit adults about their sexuality. Just a little teenager, mm. right? And that it was standard. Teenagers were talking to 40-year-old adults. Um, you remember a girl called Astrid Woodcraft? Didn't know. Lawrence Woodcraft, the, the, the architect who had to look over the free wings. Well, his daughter, she, her videos are on my channel. She was so embarrassed. My first, my very first job, my very first assignment when I came onto that job was there was a man who was about 40 years old. He was a staff member. His wife had been sent to uh, Florida. She'd been gone for a year or two on training and he hadn't seen her and he had admitted that he had masturbated or been masturbating. And how, where did that come up? How, he how did that information he, come out? He got in trouble for something and he admitted it, or he was getting a confessional and admitted it. That's how it comes up. And um, so I was 15, and he came to the office, and I had to handle him. So it's like the first day, I think, or the second day I started working on this job, and I had to tell him that he couldn't masturbate. I had to have him read a policy where L. Ron Hubbard says masturbating is bad. And I had to get him to figure out how not to masturbate. And you're 15 years old. Yeah, I'm 15. I was so embarrassed. I didn't even know what I was doing. And I'm telling this 40 year old man to not masturbate. And it was the most embarrassing thing in the world. She was 15 years old. And she had to tell a 40 year old guy not to masturbate. She was a 15 year old ethics officer. 
And she said, the most embarrassing thing this lifetime was her being forced to handle the sexual ethics of adults. Mm. You see, this goes back to Hubbard. What, what do you mean, 15, 15? You're an old, ancient Satan in a young body. You can do any job. Mm. But this is abuse. It is. Serge, I don't think he's ever gotten over the his, his having to handle. Well, he was more, he was thrown into the RPF and had to twin with literally pedophiles. And I mean, his story is just, gosh, I wish you'd get him on your channel. His, his story, maybe I'll introduce He's, he's quite a, a horrible story of Scientology's ethical conduct regarding ethical people on the planet. <laughs> so using children, you see, it, it's a statistical thing. It's just stats. Young teens used to give well-done auditing hours to interrogate adults about their sex lives. And, and the other side of it is, is adults knowing that they're going to be going to session with a teenager and talking dirty in front yes. of it's, yes. and, and they were paying extra money for doing this, is what I'm told, that, that yes. young auditors were being lined up and that there was no ethical concern. There was no protection for these young people, as, of course, there should be. There absolutely should be. But, yeah, so you pay extra few hundred dollars and um, get to talk about your lurid fantasy world with with a young there are people that get off on that of course there are yeah. love to relive the you know and shock or whatever so john now that we've done a little bit of tidbits on this and that can you can we get into as hubbard got older especially in his last years he certainly deteriorated mentally something mm. the cult we want to keep in mothballs and wraps because how could he be such a genius they're selling his genius and yet go go into a mental decline mm. the old physician heal thyself yeah absolutely uh, you know, when a doctor gets all these morbid illnesses and he's a doctor, doesn't she know the answers to handling human health? So um, can you read, have you got pain and sex there, John? Have you got the issue there? I think you, you sent me a copy, didn't you? As you say, in his eventual years, from witnesses who've come forward, we know that Hubbard was falling into dementia. Um, probably not helped by his alcoholism um, and it, variable drug use over the years. And there, there's great difficulty with Hubbard, which is, you know, those who follow him, as, as we did, believe him to be a heroic, saintly, brilliant man who, who his whole life was dedicated to liberating humanity. What we have found uh, through diving very deeply into the life and times of Aaron Hubbard is that the opposite is true. This is a Janus situation that, that Aaron Hubbard is, when it, one of the titles for Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky along the way was Hubbard Through the Looking Glass. Um, and in fact, Russell Miller's Barefaced Messiah, I think even the new edition still refers to the manuscript he had from me as Hubbard Through the Looking Glass, because what I saw was that everything was the opposite of what it seemed to be. Mm -hmm. So rather than this man being a humanitarian and a philanthropist, he was a misanthrope. He, he did not like people. He wanted people to like him. He wanted to be adulated. But as soon as somebody did anything that upset him, he was unable to resolve it. Mm -hmm. uh, so many people over the, the years were very close to Hubbard, 
and then they were outcast. He was not able to maintain relationships. Red Sharp at St. Hill is, is the classic example. There are lots of lectures on the St. Hill special briefing course, and maybe Miscavige has cut these bits out now, but where he will suddenly talk about going on the, the lake at St. Hill with his friend Reg, and you know, Reg wrote a little book which was published, and great friend, and then there was a complete falling out, and this is typical. As to his sexual mores, when I talked with John McMaster, uh, who was called the world's first real clear, declared that in uh, 1965, um, to his own surprise, <laughs> John had no idea that he was going to be elected as this. Um, but he said that as he traveled around the world giving lectures and recruiting people, he met more and more women who had little red-haired babies. And he figured that in the 1950s, Ron Hubbard had been very promiscuous. Um, I don't know. That's not something I've researched. It came from the world's first real clear. It's also worth saying, of course, as we've mentioned, the, the attitudes were gay people. I had a, a telephone call ooh, about 20 years ago. My guy was a Hollywood set designer. And um, he said that he was one of the first 10 clears with McMaster and he said and the thing that had puzzled him all these years was how it was that seven out of the first ten clears were gay oh. and John McMaster was was very upset with me because after I'd interviewed him I wrote him a note saying you could get join the Gay Theatre Association in Los Angeles there was a group called the Gay Theatre Association in Los Angeles you know it, it's fine to be gay and I got a seven page letter explaining to me that he was not gay, um, which, uh, well, Otto Rose talked about a private conversation that, that he'd had with John McMaster, which uh, certainly would have indicated that John was a little bit gay. When I, I went and stayed in a house in Sunland in 1986, a lovely woman called Deborah Baker let me stay in her house, and she'd just moved out. But a few months before, she had John there, and she said uh, she had two teenage girls who were at school and she'd come home at sort of four o'clock in the afternoon one day and John McMaster chasing a young man around the house in the nude so and she felt that was not really appropriate in a house where her teen daughters might have walked in at any minute and so she threw him out but seeing how frightened he was of anybody knowing this about him and, and that's understandable in the generation he came from knowing you know you'd lived a part of your life where you could be sent to prison for your sexual mores, but that Hubbard had picked seven gay people because they'd be, in 65, they'd be incredibly controllable. You know, he'd be able to threaten them in any way. We're told that John Travolta in, I think, 1982, gave an interview to Rolling Stone saying how deplorable the new management of Scientology was. And then suddenly he was back in again. And, it, you know, it's been suggested that Hollywood seems to be the last place in the world that will accept homosexuality. There's, you know, it's been so slow, which is bizarre, given, you know, the great stars like Montgomery Clift or Danny Kaye, um, Rock Hudson. Um, but Lancaster, there have been quite a lot of gay men who, who were big movie stars. But it's still... You know, there's that reluctance. So the thought was that in 1982, it could still harm John Travolta's career if people knew that he was gay. Um, so, so that's played upon. I think that, and it's a guess, but it's an educated guess, let's say. Um, I'm an expert witness, so, which means that I'm allowed to say what I like about Scientology and a court will presume it to be true because I was appointed as an expert witness during the Miller case in 1987. Yes. So it's educated speculation, but it's speculation. I think that he became impotent in the 1960s. Mm. I think there comes a point where he was, he had erectile dysfunction and was no longer capable of the sexual act. And from what I hear, initially the sea organization was fairly promiscuous, that there were liaisons taking place in the early sea organization. If we wind forward a little bit, one of the documents that came out of um, St. Hill in the early 1990s, which I was given, 
was an order for uh, a young woman to be put in a, an underground cesspit. It had been emptied out, but it was a cesspit, a sewer pit, in complete darkness. She was shut in there, I think, for three days because she'd been seen holding hands with another young woman. Oh. And this sensitivity, this idea that um, you, know, you, you can't hold hands, you can't, most certainly can't kiss somebody in this organization, this prohibition on normal behavior so that anything, any sign of um, affection between two people will be viewed as sex, sexual. Yes. That reflects upon the person who is in control that, that, you know, their own hidden latent desires. And that takes us to David Miscavige. And I really do wonder what is going on with him physically, you know, that mm -hmm. since, since Shelley went away, does he have a little harem? Because we've never heard about that. Um, or is there something wrong with him? Um, so that he's angry and jealous. He's, he's satisfied his lust with power. I think he gets his orgasms by cracking a whip. His lust for power is the common denominator on every atrocious, hideous act he does behind closed doors when the curtains are down and you don't see what goes on mm. in the organization. But you know, even Ronald Wolf, who was interviewed by Playboy way back, he said, Auditing will address a guy's entire sex life. Mm. It was an, it's an, this incredible preoccupation. I want to stress in this video how much Scientology wants to get the data on your sex life, right? They, they crave that. Mm. Now, people are, sometimes have trepidation when they want to leave. Mm -hmm. Thinking, oh my God, I told, I told, uh, I told them that I stroked the penis of my German shepherd. There, mm -hmm. there was this, there was this, did I ever tell you the story of this German shepherd? Uh, there, there was a girl who, when she was 12 years old, stroked the penis and rubbed up and down the penis of her German shepherd. And then in counseling and interrogatory, and have you ever had sex with an animal bestial? She was a 12 year old for God's sake. She confessed this. And, and I was a, C, a case supervisor at the time. This was slapped on her top program. Bestial activity, never, ever, never, ever promote to executive permission. And not only that, well, how did David Miscavige get to, to an executive position? I mean, he's the most beastly human being I know of. <laughs> she always wondered why she never got promoted. She was just, she was just an ex ex excellent staff member. She never, never, never got, she never knew any of this. No. Although the word was out, people gossiped that, and they didn't even have the details. They were just, she had sex with an animal. They didn't get that a 12 year old did this. Mm. So the punishment, do you see how taking sex to a whole level of insanity. Mm. Now, because of Hubbard's law of commotion, for every single thing Hubbard has written, there is a doctrine or issue 180 degrees opposite. An equal and opposite reaction. Equal and opposite. In, in uh, I think it was 1967, Hubbard wrote, we are no longer going to interfere with people's private lives sexually. Oh, it's, all, it's all canceled, all, any, any intrusion. Well, I'll tell you, a girl called Nora Crest, who has done videos exposing all this, and mm. she's public about it. Yeah, I know Nora. Oh, you know Nora. She kissed a girl. And for a, for a kiss, a, a gentle expression of affinity, 
She did a brutal RPS of three years. That's a rehabilitation project force, the, the labor camp, the gulag of Scientology. Prison camps. Yeah. So she did three years of prison camp with precious sleep deprivation, refried rice and beans twice a day and nothing else to eat the, 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 for kissing a girl. This is long after Hubbard wrote. Uh, we won't interfere anymore. We won't interfere. So what Hubbard says may look nice on paper. And then there's the actual, because there are issues that if you have any kind of non-authorized sexual activity, RPF, prison camp, straight to the prison. This is a huge control. Hmm. You, can't, you can't even make out or get close or touch someone you've fallen in love with without prison camp sentence looming over your head. And that, that leads, control. And that leads yeah. us to the nightmare that is the pain and sex bulletin. Um, this came out on the 26th of August, 1982. So just over a year before I left. And there are a slew of is issues coming out in from 81 onwards, where Hubbard seems to be in a very strange state of mind. And so <clears throat> here we have it, pain and sex. This uh, Hubbard Communications Office Bulletin probably won't increase my popularity, but would be very remiss if I did not pass on an important discovery. That that's, doesn't make, quite make grammatical sense, but that's what it says. There are two items in this universe that can cause more trouble than many others, uh, many others combined. One is pain, capital letters. The other is sex, capital letters. One should know more about these things. They may have applications, but they are used by destructive beings in great volume to cave others in. Pain is used by destructive beings to cave. Who would have guessed, you know, that the inflicting of pain is a bad thing? Um, despite the false data of Freud, psychologists, psychiatrists, and other criminals they are not native to a being. So pain mm -hmm. and sex are not native to a being. Good mm -hmm. to know. They are only artificial wavelengths. They have exact frequencies that can be manufactured. Sex has a frequency that can be manufactured. It's an interesting thought and doesn't sound very scientific to me, but there you go. A being or a machine can synthesize either one. Pain becomes a lock on a being's abhorrence for misalignment of his own electrical flows. So we're hurled back into the 1950s and this idea of the electricity that surrounds a being. It's a lock upon unconsciousness, which shuts off knowingness. So shuts off perception. Sex is a lock on and perversion of the joy of creation, which involves a whole being and expands him but by using just one wavelength, sex, this can be perverted. Sex is a wavelength. I'm still having a problem with that. Um, this can be perverted and he contracts. So it makes you smaller to have sex, apparently. When pain enters a scene, a being withdraws, contracts and can go unconscious. When sex enters the scene, a being fixates and loses power. So we're going to help you lose your power. Destructive creatures who do not want people big or reaching since they are terrified of punishment due to their crimes invented pain and sex to shrink people and cut their alertness, knowingness, power and reach. So the idea that sex is, is a way of um, reproducing a species and we look at the millions of species in the world. And apart from things like amoeba, which split to reproduce, sex is, is the foundation for, for most creatures. But according to him, it's an invented thing somewhere way down in the past. Um, 
Thus, you see people who are experiencing either pain or sex introverting and not producing much. Well, so he's suggesting that celibate people are more productive. Yeah, production. Yeah. I, I've got to interject that while we're talking about sex, how Scientology for 25 to 30 years engaged in coerced abortions, killing off babies year in and year out. Of course, they didn't want to pay for the abortion. No. So they made Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is funded by the federal government. And they shipped babies to Planned Parenthood for abortion. Mothers, yeah, pregnant, pregnant women. Pregnant women. No. I've got one guy, he would drive the buses every Friday. The buses had two seats each side and an aisle, and the bus would be completely full. Every Friday, two buses with maybe a hundred women. This, this was in the Clearwater area. He was in the Guardian's office. Forced abortions at Flag Land Base. Okay. How many were there? Well, there was, uh, imagine a van um, with 12, I guess, seats in them, that kind of thing, and there was two vans. So, trying to recall back then, there was two vans going uh, twice a week for months. So, was it full? I don't know, but there was two vans, so obviously one of them was full, otherwise it would take one van. So, uh, and they would go to different locations. One van went this way, one van went that way. So the, church, the church scattered the abortions around so that the, the local public wouldn't know how right. many women... But it's safe to say it was probably in the hundreds of forced abortions? Oh, yeah. And that was really odd, you know. Um, I was asked, why didn't you just have birth control, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, that, my wife refused, you know. And then I remember a lot of heat pressure came down on her. But for the women who consented to, yeah, because they didn't want to lose their husbands, right? normally, right. this was a form of emotional blackmail. You'll lose your husband, you'll be declared if you don't get an abortion. The main abortions happened in the hierarchy mm. where they have what they call loosely interface, gold base. Mm. And they would go to Riverside for abortion. So, so, so just look at this. Whatever Scientology is going to suck out of your mind, for their data banks on your sex. They absolutely want to kill any pregnancy. If you do have a child that reached teenagers, they want to get that child for the seal. That child belongs to them. Mm. So if the child does make it through not getting aborted and lives through and goes to Delphi and so on, now that's cult property and your counterintention if you don't donate your child to the cult. But I want to, I want to, do you have some comments? Did, were you aware of coerced abortions at St. Hill? It, it wasn't happening when, when I was involved. People were, you know, I left in 83. People were still allowed to, to have children. And then the scandal blew up about the Mexican ranch in the, mm. where children have been shipped down from LA and, and onto this scorpion infested ranch. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I interviewed, um, he was 14 when I interviewed him and he'd been, his parents had been sent to um, Los Angeles that they were English. Mm. And he was left with a little gang of feral children at the age of eight, wandering around the blue buildings, which still had, um, it had been the hospital, the Cedars of Lebanon, and it still had medical stuff, including syringes and drug ampules littered around that had never been cleaned out because there was, there was quite a lot of the building that was not in use. And these children would just wander around. And, and he talked to me about, you know, them going up onto the roof of the blue buildings with no supervision whatsoever. Um, talking with a woman who, who um, spent her childhood 
um, at St. Hill in East Grinstead, near East Grinstead. Um, she said there was a point where there were 80 children at the Stonelands um, house, which was a house that was, um, it was zoned for 50 people and it had oh. 200 people in it. She talked about the way children were hidden when social services came out to check, that they were given an orange to eat so, so that they wouldn't admit to their near starvation, in fact. This Hubbard, you know, put sex and the family into one place, which he called the second dynamic. And the health of Scientology in terms of its attitude towards sex, but most of all in its attitude towards the family, is deplorable you know that um so children were were never treated as in in the way that that they should be treated and you know Scientology kids uh which is a remarkable group of people um who grew up in Scientology and some of them of course are now my sort of age but they grew up in Scientology and, and I, mm -hmm. sorry John if, if yeah. they were sealed, they grew up in a commune. There was no nucleus family. No. And then in the 1980s, in a final act of brutality, all family time was cut off. Mm. Scientology would permit, per, give you permission to see your children one hour a day. Mm. If you were lucky. The break was Elon, you had, if you had a baby, or had a thing, you get one off. This was called family time. Mm. And then that was slashed. Yeah. That disintegrated, uh, that caused one of the biggest write-ups that the announcement, no more babies, was made in the big mess hall in, in Los Angeles as a big dining room so, so a lot of people can fit in. And two messengers with their lanyards and their fruit salad and there's Sea Org <laughs> Navy caps with the laurel leaves, oozing authority, announced one day, which is around 88, 89, no more babies, none. And then you had to fill in a form stating you would not get your spouse pregnant if you were male or that you did not intend to have any more babies. So there's something about Scientology that completely controls and wants all the data on your sexuality, at the same time creating blockage and slaughter. Maybe I'm gonna call it baby slaughter. Yes. I'm just gonna name it that. Now, here's what happened. A bunch of women never got over their coerced abortion and they left. We're talking about hundreds now, hundreds. And some of them were Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. And then they went back and gave it in, they, to, they confessed to their priests that they, because the Catholic church absolutely opposes abortion. Mm -hmm. And then the priests do summary reports to their bishop. And then their bishop do summary reports to the Vatican. And slowly it climbed right up to Vatican level that Scientology was coercively, not, this, this isn't, we're not talking, you know, we've had a good discussion on this, John, but I want, every, I want the audience to know we are not talking about pro-choice or anti-choice. We're not, we're not, we're not getting into that argument at all. Should there be pro-choice? Should we're talking about coerced, enforced abortions by the management and hierarchy of an entity where the girl had no power of choice. That's what we're talking about. For those that believe in pro-choice, don't don't get muddled into thinking, well, you know, what if the girl didn't want it? No, 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 no. I mean, I had a, a specific instance, a woman who told me that when she was on the rehabilitation project force, she, she fell pregnant and she was ordered to have an, a termination. 
And for two weeks, on a daily basis, she was screamed at and told that she must do this, and she refused. And there was another pregnant woman on the Rehabilitation Project Force. So the two of them were assigned to emptying human excrement Ooh. from a cesspit into another, in, through wheelbarrows. And when we think about how careful we are meant to be with pregnant women and their health, the idea of, of putting them in contact with human excrement is vile and utterly disturbing. And it's, as you say, we're not talking here about pro-choice, pro-life or, or any label. We're talking about enforced abortion. And there is, there is no, you know, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, that is most certainly wrong. Um, and it, it should not be an aspect of a religious teaching. Uh, you know, no doubt about it, but... Um, How is that religious? Yeah, and the, and the idea that, that somehow you're, you're going to achieve total freedom in Scientology by doing exactly what you're told, and what you're told may be very destructive. Of course, any woman who's been forced into this situation is later going to regret it, mm -hmm. and it is going to be traumatic, and it is going to, you know, to some degree, it is going to affect the rest of their lives. It is a vicious and awful thing to do. And the man is there talking about pain and sex being somehow implanted into people. Well, moving on then to having the determination to stop procreation, to mm -hmm. stop human life. Um, there is, this is entirely, entirely wrong. And, and again, it, it exemplifies this thing that those who believe, as we did, have a fervor, you know, that, that will basically, and a certainty, a sense of certainty, a feeling of knowing this is the right thing. It can take an, a lot of evidence to change that. But as between us, we've seen an enormous amount of evidence, and we've come to conclusions about Hubbard's temperament and about the validity of Scientology based upon that evidence. And the evidence is that Scientology has destroyed families, broken lives, bankrupted individuals, and inflicted pain mm. upon many people. And, and that seems to, you know, when you talk about David Miscavige and lust for power, I agree with you. That's, that's all I can find in the man, that he's a bully. He's a sadist. He is somebody who, you know, I wasn't at all keen on Louis Theroux's Scientology movie. Um, I, I thought it was trivial in many ways. But seeing what the executives of Scientology were put through in the double trailer called The Hole, as they were in prison for, what, eight years or something, that, you know, forcing people to lick the carpet, you know, this is... Lick the bathroom floor. Yeah, this is domination. This is absolute control. And it suggests, I mean, it makes me think about uh, Wilhelm Reich, who, before he invented the tinfoil hat and went off the map, when he was, he broke with Freud in the 30s because he figured that the reason the Nazis were as evil as they were, and this is before the Second World War, the re reason the Nazis were as bad as they were was because they could not find sexual fulfillment. They could not have a proper orgasm. They didn't enjoy sex. Here we see Hubbard at the end of his life at a point where he doesn't appear to have any sexual um, appetites left. And he is now making other people suffer uh, for his own delight. And that, you mentioned Rhonda Wolfe, his, his oldest son, Elron Hubbard Jr., who worked with him for seven years closely. And he tells some very lurid stories about Ron Hubbard's sexual behavior in the 1950s. He says that his father liked to drug women, giving them both an upper and a downer, so they wouldn't remember what had happened to them. And he then liked to tie them up and cut them with a razor blade. You know, in the 1940s, when he wrote the affirmations, oh. he wrote some pretty scary, deadly things of how he could, well, how he could rape women and hmm. his power over women and all that. These were 
quite outlandish statements. You know? mm. And these affirmations have never been denied. So in the 40s, he had already decided and postulated a pretty energetic sexual life. Yeah, there's the specific passage about him having uh, seven orgasms in a day or something in, in one of those things. And as you say, the affirmations were submitted to court during the first Armstrong case in 1984, and nobody in Scientology denied yeah. their veracity. Um, so, you know, and I later, of course, at that time, Robert Vaughan Young had taken over as head of the archives. I later interviewed him about this material, and there was no denial that this was the way Hubbard was. And of course, his first letter about Dianetics, which was at the beginning of 1949, written from Savannah, Georgia, and he's writing to his literary agent, Fory Ackerman, and, and he says that this new technique he's discovered, which is in fact not Dianetics, but a form of deep transhypnosis, but this new technique he's discovered, you can rape women without them knowing it. Now, subsequently, there was a case in the US, I think he was a dentist who was convicted for having raped numerous women using hypnosis on them. So it is a technique that can be used and you can create an amnesia trance where the person doesn't remember what's happened to them. So that Hubbard should have been boasting about such a thing. And it, you know, again, the letter came from Fari Ackerman. I, he provided me with all of the correspondence from Hubbard. Um, it's, you know, this is a very perverse and very peculiar human being whose own sexual life was, was very strange in his relationship to his own family, that he abandoned Nibs Rundewolf and his sister, uh, Katie Catherine Gillespie, when they were, I think, six and eight years old. He just left his, his wife, Polly, to look after them. And in fact, his parents, uh, supported his children. He refused to pay anything towards their support. He then remarries without having divorced his first wife. So he marries bigamously. He then has another child, Alexis Valerie Hubbard, dedicates the book Science of Survival to her in 1951, but then 20 years later writes her a letter saying, you're not my child. Yeah. Then his own four children, well, Quentin committed suicide. He was gay. Um, only Diana of the four children is left involved with Scientology. So he was not a good father. Um, and Even though he died with $650 million, not one penny was left to his other children and the four, the three children by Mary Sue Hubbard got a pittance, $50,000 mm. or something like that. That's and the millions were given to the cult. Well, to the, the Church of Spiritual Technology most specifically took half a billion dollars. And its original purpose was to perpetuate the name L. Ron Hubbard. Mm. And that's all it does. It's, it's meant to keep him famous, which I speculated about back in 1990 in Let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. Um, Marty Rathbun, uh, <clears throat> the deplorable Marty Rathbun, uh, in one of his uh, blogs put forward this idea I know, about 10 years ago or something, a little less than that, seven or eight years ago, that maybe Hubbard wanted to be viewed as a god. And mm. I, I wrote a comment saying, go back. I wrote this book in 1990. If you would but read it, you will see that 30 years ago, I... 25 years ago, I pointed this out, that in the way of the Romans and the Chinese, that by having your name repeated, you, you will persist somehow. And I, I think it's a, a pathetic idea on Hubbard's part that, um, as, as Lao Tzu says, with, with, with the best teacher, the people say, we did it all ourselves. The best of teachers doesn't want to be revered, doesn't want to be worshipped. That, that's a despicable need in a human being to want to be adulated and ooh, it's horrible. And yet that's what Ron Hubbard was after. Yeah. You know, we've touched on the coerced abortions a lot. And I just want to read you one little blurb. I, I just want to 
make quite sure we've covered really important points on coerced abortions. Yep. In 1997, in response to the high volume of Scientology staff sent to have abortions, the head of Planned Parenthood of Riverside, they're in the business of terminating pregnancies, but the head honcho said, I just felt it was strange that they would all make the same decision independent of their individual circumstances, that they all made the decision to have an abortion. She's talking about 150, 200 girls in their 20s early arriving at the time. No matter how old they were or how many children they had already had, we found it almost unbelievable. And when we started asking more questions in order to find out their individual motives, because we were suspicious, they stopped coming to us altogether. So what they then did is they found out the abortion girls to other clinics, but did not want them scrutinized even by the, they get federal money, Planned Parenthood live on doing it. And even they put up a wall against, that's how wholesale the enforced abortions were. So in this episode with John, just to recap, Joining a cult gives away your own power of choice on your sexuality. Howard even wrote, and it's enforced by ethics officers, that you are not, should not have sexual intercourse at all if you're pregnant, mm -hmm. because it creates engrams and trauma in the fetus and so on. So as soon as you're pregnant, you're governed even more strictly. Masturbation and all sex is off limits in those nine months. I, I mean, I could give you detail after detail because I was a case supervisor and I saw it all. But one of the most poignant things that to this day I remember, when I was at the church hierarchy being punished for those six months, one day I was in a in the MLO office, MLO stands for Medical Liaison Office, which is there. It's not a, it's where you go for any medical, any medical issue. And the person running it may not have any medical knowledge. Oh, no, 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 it's no. Office, you know. <laughs> and the bus got emptied on return of these girls. And they were all immediately assigned ethics conditions. They now had to do confusion on up for getting pregnant. And doing these formulas for just getting pregnant to have a baby was ordered by David Miscavige. Mm -hmm. So now you are viewed as an, and you've got to do enemy and treason. <laughs> you are in treason to your cult for allowing a pregnancy. By the way, they had condoms and other things for free, but it's, it's, a, it's really messing with your mind. It's a kind of gaslighting. How dare a so-called church force you to do the rituals of lowered conditions, treason, enemy, doubt, liability, and then you've got to do penances and get more sleep deprivation. In other words, you're wicked. You were evil to get pregnant. Hmm. That is the Scientology mindset on you wanting to have a baby. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that I, when, I, when I left, I, I started speaking out straight away when I was only speaking out to ex-members um, it was about six months before I first did a media interview and that was 
actually to protect the reputation of independent Scientology, although I didn't believe anymore. Um, the Daily Mail was, was running an article and I eventually said, all right, I'll give an interview because I'm worried that, that you're not getting correct information. But it surprised me that so few people were willing to speak out. Now, why was this? The, you know, was it because they were frightened of being harassed? Oh, well, that could be possible because there was a lot of that. That was for sure. People trying to shut me up and stop me talking. But with time, on a number of occasions, when I talked with somebody who really had something to say about you know, the, what they had seen inside Scientology, they would say, but I don't want my children to find out about my sexual behavior when I was younger. Mm. And just the thought that this group has avidly collected every little tidbit about your life and may release it for you know, works as a very strong block on um, freedom of speech, on, on free statement. And so it's a very good way of controlling people. It's not a very good way of liberating people. It's not a good way of making people stronger, wiser, and more competent. It's a way of restricting people and getting them to do as they're told. And ultimately what that will be is either working as a slave within Scientology, because it is a form of human trafficking, it is a form of modern slavery, the way that staff are treated. There's no doubt about that. Or it's a route to bankruptcy, you know, and financial ruin, unless you're one of the super rich, who are, in fact, the group of people that keep Scientology going, that, that it's very rich Scientologists. I mean, we've, and Jeffrey has, has done something about David Gentile and that whole clique of people who are involved in laundering money from the Russian mafia so that they could pay Scientology. The, the, the ethical nature of Scientology is so highly questionable. And their method is a propaganda method, which is just as Russia today and the Kremlin will say, well, obviously you're an idiot for saying something like that. It's complete nonsense. They won't. They'll, they'll do an ad hominem attack. They'll attack you as an individual. They'll try and find your buttons, the things that trigger you, so that they can frighten you off. And we both know a lot about that, eh? We've experienced a fair amount of that. But they won't say, this piece of information is not true, and we can show you why it's not true, and we can have a rational conversation about it. It'll be this angry torrent of abuse, which is very much like the black propaganda machine uh, of the, the Soviet Union, which sadly continues to this day through the, the FSB and the GRU and, and their activities. And so the thing is to collect evidence, to sort out information, to, to look for authoritative sources. And I would say that without doubt, if you research Scientology, if you research Ron Hubbard, you find a charlatan. You find a man who claimed all sorts of wonderful things, not one of which is true. There are no super beings. That you know, that all of the claims of cure, all of the things. Hubbard went to his grave sick with all of the things that he had said he could cure in 1950, you know, including bursitis, which was a word I had to look up. But he, had, he still had asthma. He was still wearing eyeglasses. You know, he had all sorts of things wrong with him. He had a tumor, a large bump. It was a, I think it was a sebaceous cyst, in fact, or an acne spot that had grown to the size of a, of a anyway, baseball. Yeah. Anyway, John, first of all, I said, what I, I wanted. I'm delighted that you're officially an expert witness. Um, 1987 High Court. I'm delighted that Eton College called you as a guest to speak. I'm delighted that you put up that video. I do want to tell people that may, come, may have just seen sex in the headline of this and opened it up just two, three videos back. Watch John's presentation. 
to the Eton College students. I, that made my day. I was cheering <laughs> on that. So I'm inviting you to go look at that. I want to end on a brighter note. We've looked at uh, the darkness of, God, the culture has such darkness in there, hidden things. Right now, I live in Los Angeles and the complex is walking distance from my home. So I'm often driving by. On the weekends, they have these banners up saying, please come in free food. We're, they want to lure people in offering them some chow. That's how much they've gone to a beggar bowl, begging to get in people. You get lured in for a meal and listen to this video of what the cult will do about your sexuality. Mm. Is, that, is that worth a free Sunday lunch? Listen, John, it was super cool to be with you. I look forward to joining you. I've got another hot topic, which is worth exploring with you. I'm just so happy to be your friend. Yeah, and likewise. I want to give you a warm hug before I end, before we end this. Don't you agree? We've yes. good, good, given a lot of good stable datum yet. And, um, Go watch John's presentation. It's just really, really good stuff. Thank you. The forthcoming generation of learned minds at Eaton College. Sweetheart John, take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. Stay with us. We have a lot more revelations for you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.